Excellent stuff. Now, it's as well this isn't on on a Saturday night because we'd be telling you not to watch it. No, we wouldn't. We would be telling you to watch it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a really uh, top-notch show. We've seen a, a little bit of a clip of it. Uh, you can actually watch a little bit of a clip of it yourself if you want to because uh, I can share that with you. But we have uh, two uh, fellow whiskey enthusiasts, or, well, uh, experts, experts. No, no. no. We have got one academic expert who I would I would argue probably knows as much about certainly the history of whiskey and stuff as anybody on the planet, uh, Irish whiskey as anybody about. And we've got Mark, who's um, I don't think he's as well versed in the whiskey stuff. Well, actually, this program is going to be on uh, tomorrow night and BBC Two, isn't it? Yes, tomorrow night on BBC Two. So check your listings. It's available on iPlayer. Now we'll bring them on and they can tell us. Yes, here we go. Stand by, gentlemen. Here you come. And as if by magic, you're in the room. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Hi, Armiel. Good. Good to see you, Mark. Good to see you, Fanon. Long time no speak since this morning. <laughs> About <laughs> half ten this morning. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it feels like it hasn't been that long since I've talked to you either, Fanon. Yeah, <laughs> <Because> no. <laughs> I was on the phone with him during the week, and I heard a... A wee clink as I, uh, oh, are you having a drink? I'll have one with you. Terrible reception down here. You see, all sorts of. <laughs> and it was four and a half hours later, <laughs> still on the phone. And uh, yes, I ended up imbibing slightly more than I had planned. <laughs> now, we are joined by Fanon O'Connor and Mark Thompson, who are the two presenters of BBC show that's on tomorrow night, all about Ulster whiskey. So, which one wants to go first and tell us what it's all about? Mark. Yeah. Well, well, well. Well, well first, firstly, I'm feeling super self-conscious with this colour here, but it has been a scorcher of a day here on the glorious, glorious East Coast. Uh, and so I've been out doing digging the garden and stuff like that, and I've got absolutely used to it. So. You need a makeup girl, Mark, to do your makeup I, I, for I, you, I, so I, you don't you don't clearly, glow red like a lobster. I, I clearly do. As you will see through the program, there was zero uh, makeup budget, and um, <laughs> I, I don't think either of us are very proud of our appearance through <laughs> lockdown. But there you go. <laughs> but no, it, it's been it's been almost exactly um, and very appropriately three years since. Um, the idea of doing this program was first mooted, and it was definitely August 2018 that I was over at um, Echelonville, which are just across the peninsula from me here. Um, there's, a, there, there's, there's about four miles between, between me and, and Echelonville, and in my proper day job over the years as a graphic designer, I used to be managing director of a big design firm in Belfast. Um, went self-employed a while ago. They found me. We get on very well, and I'm I'm back and forth there a fair bit. Anyway, um, Fanon happened to be there, and and it was clear to me that this idea of doing a program, he was the right man to introduce to the producer Sean McGuire. And after a series of conversations, um, he foolishly agreed to be part of this adventure. And, uh, and we have had a, a great time sharing knowledge and getting to know each other and then, of course, on our actual adventure. Excellent. Now, Fanon, what were you doing up at Eichlinville? I was enjoying a perfectly good tour at Eichlinville. <laughs> those people collared me and said, right, you're going to be on the television. I said, no, 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 you can't. There's people that will see me and, and they don't know where I am. And um, <laughs> luckily they, they left it alone 
for three years and now we suddenly appeared in a kind of a, a renewed and there was nothing in the middle so um <laughs> no no it's been, it's been a lot of fun and nice. um, yeah now mark you've said about your background being in graphic design okay yeah now, you, you you've had some success in the graphic design uh drinks world correct well i mean I, it was probably about four three four years ago that i i was introduced via a prior client to Gareth Irvine of Copeland mm -hmm. and so Gareth and I started to do a wee bit of work which which brought them to to life and of course now they've relocated to Donica D and I continue to do more work with Gareth and and you may have seen the uh, the set of gins the set of rums and then just last week their, their debut blend um, and it was around that time then started to get to know Shane and Jarleth and Anne-Marie and Suzanne and Peter and everybody over at Eklundville and, uh, and our families kind of, oops, there goes the earphone. Our families would have known each other. Oh, you know, my father certainly would have been very familiar with um, Jarlis' father. And it's a small farming community. We all kind of know each other. The whole place isn't uh, that big, let's be honest. No, no, look, it's really not. It's really not. And, uh, and well, you know, one conversation led to another conversation. And because over the years, I've been very fortunate to work in some big design agencies and big ad agencies, work with some great clients, work with some really great colleagues. Um, went self-employed a while ago and um, had a few conversations with, with Shane. And I know that they did some, had done some really, really great work with Drinksology over the years, mm -hmm. um, including, of course, bringing, bringing Dunville's back to, um, to the, the, the retail shelves in the category. And yeah, for the last three years, we've done various things. Um, in fact, I think, Marty, the first time I, I met you was at the launch of the great big VR Port Morant 18 year old box set yeah. uh, in Belfast. I vaguely remember we crossed paths that we, we did. Uh, it was upstairs in, in, in uh, Orpheus, the, the, the rather lush Orpheus. Here, listen, and... as long as it wasn't the Blue Oyster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I, I, anybody that knows me knows I, I think pretty much everything they do at Dunville's is super. I, I think the, the, the releases, the single cast releases are just fabulous. The rum cast one, I just wish it was a bit cheaper. <laughs> Otherwise, I would, I, would, I would possibly be having one tonight. But uh, no, the, the, the stuff that they do is fabulous. But you, you touched on uh, Dunville's there. Now, if you're going to make a programme about whiskey in, in Ulster, you can't, Dunville's is really one of the big hitters, certainly of, of its time. Um, so what can we, I take it we, they make an appearance or two in the show? Well, I, I think, uh, well, certainly, yes, they do, they do, but I think it would probably be better for Fanon to start at, at the, the origin of the story because mm. we don't just leap into the golden age of, of the mid-late 1800s. There's, there's far, far more to discover than, than just that era. But yes, the Royal Irish Distilleries is, is, is in there. It has to be in there, given the scale of it all. But um, we, did our, we, did, we worked really hard, even under lockdown and travel restrictions, to get away out of Belfast and to, to go across the water and to try to tell as, as broad a story as was practically achievable within the sort of 55-ish minutes that you have to do, to do that. Now, Fanon, uh, the origins of Ulster whiskey. Now, I don't want to preempt what's in the show, okay? I, I, I don't want to basically tell us what's in the show, but you're the best man probably in the planet to tell us about how whiskey... It's hard to say because the, it's it's 
the whiskey as we know it's not whiskey was or referred to as Ushkaba. Okay. So how how did that evolve in Ulster and Scotland sort of symbiotically or or the heritage of it, if you like? Yeah, I suppose. And again, like the I, I mean, if I go on too long, just make an X sign and I'll I'll shut up because <laughs> it's a topic that you know is quite, quite yeah. close to me. Um but it was something I was glad to talk about because uh Often what happens is you hear whiskey history from whiskey people and it kind of goes round and round in a circle. You know, you, you, you repeat things you read in whiskey magazines and books and whatnot. And there's a lot of very easy stories that you hear, like Irish monks brought whiskey to Scotland. And none of that is remotely defensible. It's just pure gibberish, the wrong century for starters. Um, but if you if you look at and, and any of these kind of this happens, so then that happens stories tend to kind of, you know, on further investigation to, you know, not hold a lot of water, uh, let alone whiskey. Um, but one thing you do see is folk grassroots carry over very, very closely between the kind of North Ulster coast and the Inner Hebrides and the Mullacantyre at a very early stage. And you see that continue down the centuries, right up to, to the age of illegal putching. And when you're talking about what's actually an agricultural practice, you know, it's really, you have kind of two histories of whiskey. And you're right to say early on, it's not whiskey at all. It's medicinal alcohol. It's, yeah. it's the knowledge of distilling. And in one history, you're talking about who can read and who can transmit and who would have that knowledge. And it, it almost certainly does come there first because it is, it is technology. Yeah. And then the second history is agricultural distilling. When does it become a farmyard practice? And when you're talking about the dissemination, one of the strongest and really as yet untapped uh, histories is the number of manuscripts that appear on both sides. So, for instance, at one point, and unfortunately, this was originally part of the thesis. It'll never end up in the thesis. It's, it's a footnote. Of, uh, to one sentence because it doesn't really tie in with the mash bills history but i went looking for the first recorded use of the of the word ishkabaha or the phrase ishkabaha to see you know when does that first appear um as opposed to aquavita is to this and to that and it's a medical treatise written by a guy named Tygdalo higgin um and uh it's it's actually a translation of an italian medical treatise and what a lot of people don't know is that the red book of ossery in ireland which we often cite as the first record of whiskey has nothing to do with whiskey whatsoever it is also a copy of that same italian manuscript so it's it's called the concilia medicinalia it was written in bologna and it was disseminated around europe as essentially something every doctor on the cutting edge ought to know and that's what's in the red book of Austria. it's essentially a cribbed version of that so to call it whiskey is is not really fair but to, at the same time it is instrumental in the dissemination of distilling know-how but that, the one in Ossery, which is written by a Norman Franciscan, so, you know, a slightly different tradition to what people think of as, you know, it's not Ionian yeah. Christianity anyway. And um, so it's not really the same group of monks. In fact, it's much later. Um, but anyway, you have that tradition there, and they're clearly just copying the concilia. And then you have the same manuscript appearing in, in Irish um, or in Middle Irish, uh, and there's the question, well, did they copy it from the Franciscans or did they get it independently? But it's the same thing. It's just Aquavita becomes Ishkabaha and they're kind of cribbed. And you get these, the, what were called Materia Medicae, which were kind of doctor's handbooks. 
and you have various medical kindreds. You know, you have families like the Hickeys, etc., in Ireland, and then infamously in Scotland, you have the the Beaton family. Um, and you start, I started seeing the same versions appear on one side, and then you see Beatons, specifically the Beatons out in Mull. There's a lot mm -hmm. of their stuff hanging around, and you see this is clearly one thing disseminated in one direction, one the other. And what what probably happened, it's not like the Beatons rocked up with bowls of whiskey. They walked up as part of an extension of a shared cultural sphere that, you know, by that by that time, you know. Dalriada proper was gone, but you know yeah. the cultural the cultural memory can you know via the lordship of the Isles remains intact. That same shared space, and so you have the Beaton family brought over to Isla, but that link back and forth, not only down into Ireland, but again by proxy to the Mediterranean, and especially you start seeing um, not just the Italian manuscripts, but Avicenna, whom the Italians were copying in the first place, the the Islamic sources for a lot yeah. of the killing. Uh, and so, anyway, I, I worked up in a buzz at uh, <laughs> Mark and Deshaun at the time, uh, largely, you know, uh, leading up to getting Sean to take us to Isla. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a scene where we do go out to, to Kilhoman and, and um, Mark pours a little bit of Bushmills on, on the, Kil the Cross, just to remind everybody on Isla. <laughs> Where, where the whiskey came from. You know? It could get us into a whole lot of trouble in Scotland, but hey. Well, I, know, I, I, I don't know enough about the chemistry to know what alcohol has effect on that kind of granite. You know, there's an <laughs> mark well, I, of I always like to bring up the, the National uh, Heritage Center, you know. The, the fact that Bushmills, 1608, you know, the, the first whiskey license grant that sent, sent over, in 1609, they passed the Statutes of Iona. In, mm. in the Western Isles of Scotland to prohibit them importing French wine because they were all drinking Bordeaux and Clarets and all this as they were shipping off the shellfish over to, to, to France. So to me, that tells me they're drinking wine. The guys across the, the water are more prevalent in, in distilling. So it, it, from where I am, I look across, I live in Glenarm, so I look across the Campbelltown and it's literally just across the water. Um, Isla is just across the It's so close, people people get surprised by how close it was. And the fact that you have these two statutes issued by the same monarch, granting people the right to distill and prohibiting people the right to, to import wine. To me, it tells you that well, they're not going to stop drinking. They just have to go, we'll just do this stuff instead, you know? Yeah, although I would interject there, Marty. Um, one... The statutes of Iona actually did apply to whiskey in Isla as well, which was already mm. there. So they do say their inordinate love of wines and aquavita, and two, just horrendously ineffective. They kept drinking both like that. <laughs> um, just a waste of time, you know, a waste of paper, really. Um, pro pro prohibition does never yeah, seem to work out well. Fascinating because that was part of you know, of James Stewart's crackdown on Hebridean autonomy more generally. And you know, you look at the McDonald Stewart antagonism that was going back and forth for so long and there is there is a certain um how would you put it spit in the eye when the statues of iona uh, are passed because by that time the stewards had pretty much broken the spine of the mcdonald's yeah. um you know you have the 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 bloody bay battle and what the mcdonald dynasty essentially eats itself internally the son murders the father um but anyway uh 
It sounds like Game of Thrones a bit, this. There's a touch of that. There's a, well, not much as a touch. There's, there's quite a healthy helping of that. Um, but what's, what's interesting is when this crackdown comes to Isla, curiously, the, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff imposed, harsh restrictions. You know, uh, again, a lot of it was gestural, say, you know, the power has changed here. And there's one strong exception made for Fergus Beaton. And he says, you know, our dearly beloved Fergus Beaton, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and the idea that these people even then had such a stature that they were exempt from these yeah. kinds of crackdowns. And remember that the Beatons, who were the hereditary physicians to the McDonald's, immediately there's a beaten at the side of every Stuart for God knows how many generations. <laughs> you know, the, um, there's... Uh, <laughs> I, I must tell the McDonald's, you just live across the, across the globe <laughs> for me. You, you know, you, this guy's best up big time. Yeah. Now, it's, now, it's, we've had a couple of questions in, guys, uh, Mark uh, and film. Uh, Julie Mason says, sounds very interesting. Looking forward to watch the programme. Mark, is the programme just on BBC Two Northern Ireland or can you get it all across the UK? That is a very good question. Um, it will certainly be on BBC iPlayer, which I think is accessible anywhere in the world, actually, as long as you are a, a TV um, licence payer. Um, yeah. I know some folk in, from Canada were in touch with me today, and because they have an address here and they've got a TV licence, they can log in and do all that sort of thing. Yeah. So if, if, if you miss it for whatever reason tomorrow night, iPlayer for 30 days after that um, is the place to go. Uh, yes, I think there'll be big interest. Now, uh, Amazing work on the historic mash bills. Uh, I, I noticed in your book that uh, there was a picture of Bert uh, sort of malting house. And I've been to Bert. Uh, and Marty says there's a place like that in the yards. But believe it or not, my, my mum and me are convinced that there is a building like that somewhere in East Antrim. Am I right or am I wrong? Mm. Mark, you're there. I approve. Oh, where, whereabouts in East Antrim? I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, the Ards one I know very well because I, I, you know, live in where I am, the most easterly point of the entire island. I drove in and out of Newton Ards on the school bus every day, and there it was the big maltings on the hill, which just at the moment actually is being converted into apartments. So it's um, it's it's something I know very well. The East Antrim one, I'm not really sure. See, well, you see, Dustin thinks it's out around Newton Crumlin or scary direction. Really? But I, yeah, but I. I I know there was a okay. There wasn't a there wasn't a distillery distillery out there. There's there's a I think it was more like a bottle of blending plant that kind of thing. Okay. Um, okay. And it was a, it was quite short lived as far as I remember. I don't I can't remember I mean, the, the exact. Bird, the Bird Distillery out in Donegal was very 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 short lived. It was yeah. an attempt to capitalise on on the reputation of Inish Owen, and so some it was the you know the only legal distillery built in Donegal in you know. <laughs> Reco not recorded history, but certainly post-industrial history, and it it flipped out very very quickly. Yeah. But the building is still there. But the arts maltings out in the the arts peninsula was, you know, quite a strong player distributing malt to a lot of Ulster distilleries, mm. including Bush Mills, which I'm drinking now. What are you drinking now? Bush Mills. Uh, of course, I've 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 all the you know I've, I'm here. I'm outnumbered three to one. <laughs> So I've carefully hidden all bottles of like powers under the floor. <laughs> I've <arrayed> my, <laughs> my various Um But this is um, this is the distillery visitor center. Twelve year old. But oh, the twelve year old. So this is when they when they first came out. So a, a good while back, um, I, I had this one, and then the other one I popped is 
something I pick up from a song on an Italian auctioneer. Um, and it's the Bushmills 10 from 1986. And the reason I'm interested in this one is, as far as I can tell, this is the very first Irish whiskey ever that was labeled as a single malt, not a pure malt, not malt whiskey, you know, because again, the term single malt became a thing in the 60s and, yeah. and really in the 70s, you know, after you have Glenn Fiddick kind of popularized the term. Yeah. At that time, Bushmills was only selling a blended incarnation of itself. And so in the 80s, when Bushmills finally puts out a single Bushmills, it's the first. And now, you know, really in terms of Irish whiskey repivoting itself into single malt, you know, yeah. this, is, this is where it begins. Yeah, this up for less than the price of the normal Bushmills ten. Mm. So I, I, I never, I never released that. Thirty quid. <clears throat> right, hang on. As the Italian I'll, be in, I'll be back in a minute, guys. To go for a wee Google here if I see if I can find it. <laughs> Mark, when when you did the, the 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 program, what surprised you the most when you when you did uh, did your research? Uh, what's because I know you're a bit astounded about them. Uh, doing Scottish whiskey in Ireland uh, mm. in the sort of trailer. Uh, was yeah. that what struck you as, as profound or was, was are there other revelations in the program we'll have to wait for tomorrow night to see? Well, I suppose, I mean, like, like, like Marty, who has a view of, of Scotland from where he lives, I have this, uh, a, a more southerly view from where I am. You know, right out the window here is the, the end of the Mall of Galloway, and I see the, the lighthouse twinkling there all the time. And, of course, Bladnoch is, is just beyond there and, and, and all of that lovely tradition in the lowlands. Um, and in general, the thing that has always interested me is the connection that we have with here, whether that's linguistic or literary or historical. And, and to discover that in, in, in whiskey as well was, was not a huge surprise because I was vaguely aware of it from collecting old, old books and old stories and things. You could see whiskey references the whole way through. Um, and of course, with Old Cumber being not far from me, um, I know old, old folk, um, folk in their 80s who remember it when it was open. And they would still refer to it as as old comer rather than old cumber. And there was there was one day when I was at um, art college. Oh look at that! Oh, he's showing off now. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> when I when I was at art college in Belfast and I had time on my hands, I used to go hooking around all the wee um, antique shops and the Donegal Pass and Smithfield and all around there. Brick-a-brack shops, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. And you see, back then, like I'm, I'm showing my age now, I'm on the brink of 50, but back then there was so much wonderful stuff that you could find. And there was one day, and I, it will haunt me until my dying day, I went into the Donegal Pass place, and upstairs there was an old framed poster on a wall, which must have come out of an ancient forgotten pub. And rather than saying Old Cumber, spelled as it normally would be, it said Owl Comer, A-U-L-D-C-U-M-M-E-R. I couldn't believe it. So foolishly, rather than saying to the man at the stall, I'll be back in 10 minutes and go to the cash point. Will you keep it for me? I went to the cash point and I came back and it was gone. And what a silly Jack has it. <laughs> well, he does. Subsequently, subsequently, subsequently what, I, what I found was that um, they actually used that very briefly for a 15-year-old release in around mid-1880s, 1890s, something like that. And, it, and it, I missed it, you know. So I was, I was always aware that there was a, a certain amount of historical linkage, and, but no idea of the magnitude and... Yeah, you know, Fanon has been wonderful in, in introducing me to things which then send you down all sorts of wee avenues and rabbit warrens. But um, 
it's, well, it's, it has been it's been a, a wonderful experience from start to finish. Well, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate is that in and around 1900, um, Ireland was exporting 8.8 million gallons of whiskey, and three quarters of that was coming out of Belfast, and a lot of it was heading to Scotland to be blended in the Scottish blends. Um, I mean, there's this idea that Ireland never adopted the column style. Well, some guys did adopt the column style. And we're doing extremely well out of doing it. Um, and Dunville's being being the primary one of that. Mm. Now, I, br- I brought this out. Uh, now, this is this is an old bottle of Old Cumber, okay, that I have. Um, this is a pot still whiskey. Now, this is a historic mash bill. Now, I can't not start talking about this, because Fionn is doing, for anyone who doesn't know, he's doing a PhD in historic mash bills. Now, please God, don't let Brendan and Curry be watching this <laughs> because he'd kick off. <laughs> but historically, Irish whiskey was considerably different than what it is today. And and Fionn, without getting into giving us the full PhD level, tell us tell us a bit more about historic Irish mash bills. Grand, well, I have a new chapter of the <laughs> I was hoping for a reviewer, so you know, Bill. Justin, Justin, you're up. Oh, I don't have to read something about whiskey, do I? No, the, yeah. the book I flicked through it. There was great pictures in the book, by the way. Yeah, well, there's no pictures in the PhD, so <laughs> and the, the the font is even smaller in the footnote. Yeah, um, the, uh, but um, yeah, it was it was it was very different. You know, obviously, um, now we're dealing with. For the most part, either either malt or um, Irish pot still a la Irish distillers, you know, roughly 60% raw barley, 40% malt, between that and 50-50, depending. Um, but the further back you get, the kind of dirtier and stranger it all starts to look. <laughs> Even the Irish, you know, and one thing that's in the PhD that doesn't get the same kind of jazz appeal as the pot still stuff is even the column still stuff that was running through Belfast looked really odd. I mean, like it was a quarter rye. Sometimes it had oats in it as well. You know, they were using malted oats occasionally, but nobody nobody really cares about single grain with the same Brendan Carty type. Yeah, but again, it, uh, an interesting story in its own right, but just keeping with the pot still stuff, of course, raw barley was a huge part of it then as it is now, the defining part really. Um, but then you also had large additions of oats, wheat, and to a much smaller extent, rye. Rye in a big way in the column stills and a small way in the pot stills. Right. And, um, and then oats in a big way in the pot stills. And, um, and wheat kind of flickering about. Um, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that research um, was carried out in the, the public records office of Northern Ireland out in Belfast. Um, actually, the most helpful uh, archive I dealt with the entire time. They could not be more inviting, you know, whatever, Brony. accommodating. And uh, the old Cumber one was it was a bit of a mystery because what happened was um, I I saw that it was on the on the record in the catalog, and I asked for it, and the fellow in Prony that day said, "Well, okay, we'll look down." He said, "Sorry, I I, I you know it." Uh, it's not there, which often happens in archives, you know, especially large archives. Nobody really knows what what is actually still there or whatever or where, you know, it's 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 a lot wilder than I think we're given, yeah. we're given um, the image of. But anyway, I said, no, no, no problem. And um, I went back to my desk 
I was actually reading the Dunville's board meetings instead, which didn't mention MASH once, you know, extremely <laughs> eloquent, cursive, Victorian language, the board doth hitherto declare, blah, 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 not a mention of whiskey, very, very, and, you know, of course, of the time, you know, don't mention the dirty word in the room, you know, how how's all this money been accrued? Oh. <laughs> it's all just part shares and part profits and blah, blah, blah. And I was going through this, oh, Jesus. And, um, and then your man walks back with a big box and just plops it on, and I, I won't attempt... An Ulster accent, but you know, he says quite emphatically, you know, knock yourself out. And um, you can interpret how that was delivered <laughs> yourselves. And um, anyway, uh, and then I opened it and and there it all was, the, the day books. Because unfortunately, that's usually the last thing to be preserved. The most commonly preserved things are tax records because the government yeah. is interested. And then you get board meetings, things the company thought ought to be preserved. And then the last is what the people in the still house were doing each day. Uh, the kind of day to day, which is exactly what I'm looking for. So it's the hardest to find. But yeah. I had it from literally from the 1930s up until they closed. And um, it, it, it was it was remarkable. And it didn't have mash, but it had cut points. It had absolutely everything. Oh, wonderful. And so I, I ran into Jarleth Watson when I got out of Prony that day and at the Duke of York. And he was bowled over and he said, you know, we're going to make 30 casts of this tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And... Um, <laughs> What did she? What did she have to say about that? <laughs> well, is, you know, it's it's funny because you know, and Jarrett said, "Oh, this will be our um, a one-off, blah blah blah." Just to look at it. Now, I believe Shane has gone out and bought the name Old Cumber, whatever he can in whatever markets it's available. So I think Shane was quite impressed by the idea. <laughs> I think it's come a long way from like we'll make thirty casts tomorrow as a trial. But anyway, yeah. I um, we asked very pro politely if they'd hold off doing that until we could film them doing it. And um, <laughs> anyway, so the, the old Cumber Mash Bill, which was 12% oats, 40% malt, 48% raw barley, double distilled, which is another curiosity. And anyone who's had old Cumber whiskey, and of course, there's really the two old Cumbers. There's the real one, which is the one you're holding. And then unfortunately, there's the dregs, <laughs> the Hollywood and Donnelly bottling that turned up in the 80s, which was yeah. kind of sweepings of the place. Um, but if you ever, if you ever, and, and that stuff is really not a fair representation, but if you try the real one, it's one of the few whiskeys where the 30 year old is cheaper than the seven year old at auction. Yeah. You know? But well, if you try it in, in its, in its prime, uh, it's, you know, it's, I mean, pots, Irish pot still is, is heavy enough stuff already because of the raw barley, but yeah. double distilled it's, it's, you know, as I said to Charlotte at the time, you know, you could sit a pencil on it. It's, <laughs> okay, it's, okay. Um, yeah, it's like American Jello almost. It kind of it feels like a <laughs> well, Unfortunately, all of this stuff has become extremely collectible. Um, this this bottle I picked up a while back. Um, I wouldn't sell this for less than two thousand pounds. That's the truth, and I think it would be fair enough asking for that phone. You're asking like I go, you know, I I'm a terrible collector. I I can't buy old this. I, I can't sit on it. I just crack it open and, and you know, like drink myself <laughs> and no, very, very, that, very quickly. That's um, why I've got, that's why I've got a lot of whiskey open <laughs> so that I don't attack these things. But I, I have, yeah, absolutely no, no uh, self control. I, I know, I know, and I have enough self control to stop myself from giving myself the temptation, and I'll, I'll, oh. I can live with that degree of self control. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hey, hey, Mark. You do a lot of program. I, I watched him, uh, your your the, the Ulster Scots programming, um, and I do I do love what you do. I, 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 when I was growing up, 
uh, I'm sure you can probably tell. Uh, Ulster Scots was basically my lingua franca every day. And over the years, it's sort of become a little bit more diluted. Uh, being a tourist guide, when you've got someone from Pennsylvania, there's no racky sack and tackle with like that there, because I have clue what you're talking about. <laughs> you know? So, so, but you day, you day when you're at him among your reunions. I never remember when they talk away, and I'm sure they, they came when you're talking about anyway. Can you, you stop? Because I have to put subtitles in this later on. It'll take ages. My, Hang on. Uh, I've got it. I've got my, my, Oh, brilliant. My, Herb, oh, Herbison. Oh, plug. David Herbison. Fantastic. Fantastic. He's Fantastic. A, an Ulster Scots poet from yep. my, my beloved Ballymena. And, uh, I, oh, he's, oh he's, he's a queer boy now. He's a queer boy. But uh, no, there's actually, there's actually a poem about uh, drinking in it, but I'll not subject just to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, David, David. But all the Ulster Scots stuff. And there is this culture. Um, I think today, Presbyterians are seen as being very conservative and very, uh, you know, very conservative. But back in the day, they they were the whiskey guys. They were the guys who domestically were 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 distilling. The, the, the you know the farmer tilled the land sort of thing, and and a lot of the the, the women running the house would have would have distilled. So they'd have probably had lots of their own domestic recipes or domestic mash bills, recipe. I say recipes because that's, that's kind of the, the way they would have termed it, but they'd have had their own, every farm nearly would have had a still, and that carried across over to the States. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that, that uh, Fanon showed me was a, what he called a heat map, which was a, a map of Ireland in a particular era, which I'll, I'll, I'll let him talk about. But you're absolutely right. You, in the, prior to the industrializing of, of large distilleries, um, the extent of home cottage hearthside production was just unbelievable. But on far away, tell us the details. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, as 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 Mark said, you know the the hearthside, and that's, and it's a good way to describe the hearthside industry because now when we think of potching, as when we think of even moonshine in the states, it's a kind of like a foxy guy outwitting the local, you know, bumbling police officer. <laughs> Um, the jokes of hazard. It's the jokes yeah, of hazard. The jokes of hazard. <laughs> the you know, like Father Ted type Ireland. Any of these kind of mythologies of you know, some fellow in in a flat cap. You know, uh, again, foxing the guards. Um, but when you look at the 1700s, it was a very, very real threat to the commerce of of Parliament's you know legitimate tax paying whiskey. Parliament whiskey. Yeah, and and you look at the sheer volumes, and you get. A very different sense of it. First of all, you get hard side thing, but more so, you get these kind of village endeavors where you get whole communities that are based around. I mean, people forget when the 1661 excise is first passed, it is not on distilleries, it is on still houses. And still houses were this idea you know, you had a communal center where you brought grains as eventually an artisan who distills it back for you. And it's that artisan class that eventually evolve into kind of professionalized distillers. But that intermediary between farmers doing it themselves is this communal still house. And what Putching preserves at, at a certain stage is this, you get places like Urus, you know, infamously kind of blocked itself off and pelted, you know, various uh, people who look <laughs> official from the Mamor Gap. Um, and uh, with stones, <laughs> um, but it, it was a real industry, and especially, you know, you get, and and the same thing happened in Scotland, you know. As I mean, again, like Speyside was basically created by 
by the landlord class, you know, fostering yeah. uh, a way for tenants to pay rent. And there's a similar, you know, there's a similar hypocrisy that goes on, particularly in West Ulster. Um, you get Inishowen, you know, which even if it wasn't made in Inishowen, the, the idea of smoked, usually illicit malt whiskey or malted barley and malted oats, you know, but still malted grains. Um, and you start seeing people, se- you know, gentry members cellaring it and it becomes this local curiosity. And them, them commenting that there's no palate for it in the like Georgian crowd down here, you know, <laughs> that, you know they don't quite appreciate it. And it's this strange discount. And that whole story has been lost from Irish whiskey as much from the history of Ulster distilling becomes really the history of malt. And, and even like, you know, and, and um, Mark and I have had this conversation many times. Bushmills, I can say it, used to be peated and used to advertise itself as yep. peated in that old Inishowen flavor. Its neighbor, Coleraine, used to be peated and advertised itself as the old Inishowen taste. And so you get, you know, when you, when you look, first of all, by 1850, there was essentially no malt whiskey south of Ulster. Yeah. With the exception of a few experiments done by people who made pot still, but you know, and, and that can't be overstated because there's a lot of gibberish that goes around as we sell single malt Irish whiskey because single malt is so sexy because of single malt Scotch that Ireland kind of wants in on this. Um, but of course, you know, overwhelmingly, the history of Irish distilling is mixed mash bill. Yeah, with the exception of the North Ulster coast, Donegal downward and then a little way down as far as Dundalk but that Dundalk to Antrim belt it very soon gets eclipsed by by column distilling you know because it was the industrial heartland and it made yeah. sense as a place for now you do get you know Watts out of column still out in Derry etc but really that Dundalk to, to Belfast strip is is the the hub the nucleus but even that Coleraine Bushmills you know when when Alfred Barnard came to Ireland in 1886 there were two malt distilleries Bushmills and Coleraine and both of them were seemingly, Coleraine was unpeated at the time, and Bushmills, if it was still peated, was only likely. So Coleraine, I found a document where they say they stopped peating. Um, Bushmills, it's, it's harder to track. But both of them had their roots in this love affair with a style of spirit that was remarkably like what you see out in Ireland, Campbellton. You know, yeah. and that, that always used to, sh- and I, I've had quite an interest for a long time in that kind of bleed, there's really two bleeding grounds. There's the rural kind of folkloric bleeding ground that goes on. And then there's the more industrial later stage where you get the natural overlap between the industrial east of Ulster and the Scottish southwest of the central belt, Glasgow. And you get yeah. the big column still titans. Uh, you know, I, without treading on air, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of the, the guys in, in Scotland saw Belfast essentially extension of urban Scotland and, and had no problem just seeing stuff go back and forth, you know, and you, you get this, this kind of less romantic, but still extremely interesting muddy water of column still industrial whiskey going back and forth. And nobody quite seems to know where it's coming from. And I would seen that from a liquid standpoint, but it was really when I started talking to Mark, hearing how the branding was mixed up in that, how you start seeing these kind of co-equal brands. And I'll let, I'll let Mark take it away from there. Yeah, well, you know, as 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 Fanon has said there, and it's always I mean, for me, it's genuinely refreshing to to, to to meet people who understand that that continuum that there is across this very narrow strip of water, um, and and whiskey is, is part of that story. And 
yes, when it becomes commercialized and, and branding and presentation becomes a, a mark of difference, um, you do see people like Watts up in, in Derry, Stroke London Derry, who have, of course, in a show as a commercial brand, they have their own Turconnell, but they also have Craig Do Old Highland Scotch, and they're marketing these two things simultaneously in the same publicity material. Yeah. Uh, together, Irish and Scotch. There's a, there's a wonderful mirror in a, in, a, in a pub in Edinburgh that we were unable to go to to film because of COVID restrictions. And an American friend of mine who lived there for a while told me about it. And it's about 10 foot wide. And it, Andrew A. Watt, fine whiskies, um, Londonderry and Glasgow. Because they had no concept that the water was a barrier. They were quite yeah. comfortable to work on both sides. And whether that's the Beatons in the 11th and 12th century or these entrepreneurial industrialists in the 19th century, the water doesn't matter. So Watts is one of those. Um, you come on round and, you know, as, as Fanon has mentioned there, um, Bushmills and Korean are unashamedly saying our stuff tastes like that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, in the Belfast, of course, Royal Irish Distilleries of Dunville's by Bladnock and, and are operating there for a while with a number of Scotch brands. Um, but even some that, like McConnell's, for example, which of course has just recently been revived, for a while McConnell's owned Stromness in Orkney and they were producing Old Crow Irish whiskey out of Belfast and Old Orkney whiskey out of Scotland, and again, marketing them simultaneously. The same with Edward Cowan, who had inherited the family business. He was Lord Mayor of Belfast. He inherited his uncle William's business. They had number four Old Irish whiskey. They also had Loch Lomond Special Scotch. And even, you know, we've talked about um, Cumber in the 1950s even. And there was a, a family from Inverness called Gregor, Gregors were buying up all sorts of businesses in Scotland. And at the time, they momentarily, for three or four years, owned both Cumber and Beaumore on Isla. And when we went through, through Fanon's introduction to meet Jim McEwen in his house in Isla, wow. um, I said, ask Jim, do you remember anything about the Gregors? Because, of course, he began by skiving off school and, and working around the distillery. And his face lit up and he said, oh yeah, the Gregors, yes, they owned our distillery whenever I was a wee boy. And so that brings it right up into, into living memory. And yeah. when, when you start to see all the, all the pieces of the puzzle come together, you know, Mitchell's is another example, of course, a brother in Belfast, a brother in Glasgow, they're, they're producing Irish and Scotch and marketing them together. When you, when you see all the pieces, um, you stop thinking of where we live as, as two distinct countries or nations or islands and you do start to see it as a single continuum yeah. and it, it has been that for for many many centuries yeah for for millennia really um i mean uh, as i say i i constantly meet people who are, are even coming from from the likes of dublin or or Belfast. <laughs> that sounds daft, but people who are living in Belfast may not originally be from there, who have never been down the North Underland coast before. And when they come down, they'll ask you, where is that over there? And you tell them it's Scotland. And they, th they're, they're, they are puzzled by this. I mean, they just don't get how close yeah. it is. Yeah. And it was much easier. Well, I've met people from Dublin who haven't been to Wicklow. You know, there's a lot. To be fair, I met a guy from I met a guy from Brasheen who I know quite well. Who came down, after I moved down to Glenorm, he came down, and he didn't know that that was Scotland. And he lives about he lives about yeah. ten miles away. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I'm dead genuinely serious. Yeah, uh, no, unbelievable. <laughs> but, uh, of course, smuggling becomes part of that story as well, which we didn't really have time to get into. But yeah, but you know, yeah, when, but you, when, you, when you can dodge the law and there's a you've got a boat. I mean, why not? And well, it's like so this. commonplace. Part two of the program, you know, you can do. Well, there were so many revenge. things. Mark and I walked away saying, "Oh, there's a whole documentary in that." Whether it be, yeah. you know, in a show and and the the the, the lost, you know, spirit of the Pudgy Moors or the Pennsylvania Whiskey Rebellion or just the history of cross channel branding. You know, any there's yeah. so many topics. There's so many. There's so many blogs we've gone into, and we, so we were bound by kind of a broad, you know thesis as it were to, to, to move pace very very quickly yeah um but for me one you, of for me one you, of the most interesting aspects is whenever the the, the ulster scots when they came from scotland settled in in ulster and then moved across to the us they took that domestic sort of farm distilling with them because yeah. i mean it was a value-added product yeah now i once got challenged about which which of the big Bourbon brands owe their 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 lineage to to Ulster Scots, and I said, well, it's not just as simple as that. You know, the the actual heritage, the Germans, if you like, the the Ulster Scots ran into the Germans, and and the Germans were great at fermenting and brewing beer, and, and you had these guys, the Presbyterians, who were very good at distilling, and you had this sort of combination, and other guys who popped in and then took it off and ran with it. You know, yeah, yeah I mean, well, there's also, I mean, as you say, popped off and ran with it. The history of the brands is much, much later, as I'm sure is obvious, much. than the history of the drink. So that, that you know, the, what happens is people say, oh, well, if that's the case, then can I see on a label now? Now, Mark actually has plenty of those connections to, to labels. I'm going to get one. I'm going to yeah, get one. Yeah, <laughs> well, Mark's catching that. Um, we do touch briefly on, you know, and one thing, the, the great kind of, um, the great tragedy of, and I know, I know Mark and I have had this conversation, the great tragedy of, of COVID, we were amazed that we got to Isla despite COVID being in force. You know, I, I was shocked. And um, what didn't get to happen that we'd originally intended to do was to go out to West Pennsylvania, to the heartland of the, of the Whiskey Rebellion. And um, if you look at that moment, the kind of nascent, and you're not really, you know, bourbon doesn't exist at that point. No. It's not even a state at that point. Um, but when you look at that natural migration of, you know, Scotch-Irish out to the west of Pennsylvania, along with Germans and along with Scots from just straight from Scotland, um, and you see this transformation of whiskey into, well, not transformation, because it had been that already, this use of whiskey as tradable currency, as, you know, something that couldn't be taxed in premise because it's supplanting money in the first place. You know, and I think that's a, a huge part of the of what promotes the whiskey rebellion. And if you look at the rebellion itself, you know, especially among the leadership level, there is a you know, you get guys like William Finley or James McFarland or any, you know, the guys behind even Breckenridge was from Campbellton. Um, but but now he's he's kind of a an exterior figure, but but right <laughs> at the core, Finley and, and McFarland are I know McFarland was from Dungannon. I've never quite been able to trace William Finley's actual birthplace. Within Ulster, it was somewhere in Antrim. Yeah, nobody seems to actually know. Probably Palomina. Maybe Glenarm. Glenarm. All it quits and say it was Glenarm, but um, and of course you know they meet at Mingle Creek Presbyterian Church, and a lot of them are buried there. And we had hoped to go and and 
I have seen before McFarlane's grave and it's, it's fantastic. You know, it's the kind of like shot in the back by cowards kind of, you know, the assassination of Jesse James <laughs> by coward Robert Ford kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, but to see, you know, the birthplaces there would have been really, I think, moving. And we had to accommodate not being able to, to, to go out. So that was, you know, Pennsylvania and that link to America, I think was the one part of the program that really took a hit from COVID. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, I'm amazed by how much stuff we did get in. You know, we were still brimming for ideas and space, even trying to deal with what we had, you know. So, hint, hint, BBC, you know, if there's... Oh, uh, BBC. Don't... From a Whiskey Rebellion yeah. documentary. <laughs> oh, there's... Uh, listen, the, the, the thing about whiskey, the thing that differentiates whiskey from every other spirit, every other spirit, with the possible exception of some rums, is the fact that you do have a history. You, all the rest of them, you know, vodka, vodka's vodka. You know, gin, gin. Oh, people, they, they talk about, you know, um, you know, the, the 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 bringing a pint of gin and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just, it's, it's just, a, it's not a great history of gin, to be honest. Oh, in fact, but, the thesis <laughs> chapter I just finished literally was a defense of why whiskey did not degrade into gin. Why yeah. the same shared laws. Did Irish and Scotch whiskey not just become industrial London hooch? Um, the, uh, it has, it has, it has a surprisingly long time to make that argument. Uh, you know, <laughs> thank heaven it didn't. <laughs> you know? no, that's it. And, and whiskey, whiskey does have and Waterford and the, the terroir. That that's always been a, a bit on certainly on marketing. You know, people turn around and they say the ter it's the terroir. They might buy their grain from somewhere else, and they might get, they might even get their water from somewhere else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's it's that sense of place, and and whenever you have whiskey, does that in a way that really very few other spirits actually capture. You know, they can talk they can talk about Russian vodka and Polish vodkas and stuff, but it's not really that that different. I mean, it's it's basically ethanol and water is what you're buying when you buy <laughs> buying your vodkas. Um, I think the different the difference there, Marty, is that for some reason, um, what I've learned over the last three plus years is that a whiskey audience cares about the stories. Yeah, they do, and, and that's not often the case for all sorts of other products. But for some reason, the story really matters. It brings a lot of value. It brings a lot of interest, a lot of emotional appeal. Yeah. Um, and having said that, you know, history can be really boring and absolutely commercially irrelevant. So it's how it's done and, and whether it's worth reviving some of these old stories or indeed, as you were showing earlier on, doing something fresh and new that's very now. You know, these are the, the marketing challenges for, for, for today. But uh, I'm, going, I'm going to jump back, actually, just, just for a moment. If you you don't got that bottle, yeah. Yeah, here, here we are. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm never, <laughs> never great at uh, seeing where the, the, the focus field is on computer cameras. But anyway, here's the story. This is um, Old Thompson, as you can see. Um, it's Kentucky whiskey. It is from a distillery called Glenmore. Now, the story here is that there were six brothers, and they were born in a tiny townland outside Derry Stroke, London, Derry, outside Eglinton called Longfield. Three of the brothers went to Kentucky around 1870. Three of them stayed at home, two of whom became Presbyterian ministers. To the Kentucky guys became distillers. And, and this is one of their, their huge brands. Now, it would have been wonderful to have visited there, but yeah. uh, their, their headquarters now in Owensboro, 
just on, on the banks of, I think it's the Ohio River, um, is now the U.S. headquarters for Sazerac. So that the, the work that these guys did leaving here that a century plus ago still carries on and echoes down through the ages. They're, they were not related to me. Sadly, there isn't some huge <laughs> fortune that I'm about to inherit. But it's just uh, one of, of those, those huge American brands that we hoped we could go on and visit and tell a wee bit more of the story of. But linking Ulster and America, as you mentioned earlier, Marty, unashamedly Presbyterian ministers on one side of the family yeah. and unashamedly distillers on the other side. There is all sorts of complexity. Well, what used to what surprise me when I first started really looking into to, to whiskey and stuff it was was the Presbyterian ministers used to make an appeal to their congregation not to get drunk in church. They used to sit and actually drink while, they're going, while the service was going on. And they used to say to them, you know, like, could you please stop? Yeah, um, I have um, a friend who'll, who'll not name, he's a Presbyterian minister in Mid Antrim, so you may well know him. And he, he does actually spend quite a lot of time in the States with, with, with other people out there. And American Presbyterians will really care about having whiskey either from, from Ulster or from Scotland because to them it's, it's a sense of connection with, with the old country and with, with back home. Yeah. I, I was. I, What's the documentary there? Was it last week? Maybe uh, about a guy called Popcorn Sutton. Who you <laughs> oh yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And the pop, popcorn, popcorn was he was proud of his sort of Scots Irish yeah. heritage and the moonshine. Yeah. And I, I, I do. It's kind of sad, but it's it's still a, it's still true. He he got found with was it eight hundred gallons of illegal moonshine, and he was going to go and do three years jail. So he decided, I'm not doing that. I'm taking my own life. And at the bottom of his grave, he has oh. popcorn says, <laughs> you know. You know well, he's, um, I mean, well. he's one of those last, you know, because I have friends in America who are distillers who speak about him as if he's some sort of, you know, long gone legend. And he hasn't been gone that long, you know. And, yeah. um, and even people who knew him speak about him as, you know, the last of the great American moonshiners. I mean, yeah. even the nicknames they would give each other, you know, Popcorn Sutton. I, to this day, have not gotten a definitive answer to why he was nicknamed Popcorn. Um, other than corn itself, I, I assume it's to do with distilling maize, Popcorn as the, as the moonshine. <laughs> I've, I've read about four or five different ones, and I'm not 100% sure yeah. what it is. But, I mean, that, I mean this guy was, was just a legend, and he, he took pride in his, his Scots-Irish roots. Mm. Um, Listen, we've got to ask you about the brand and because because Maury said we should ask you about the brand and because we had Lee Houston on uh, who's done this QV this uh, for uh, yep. Waterford. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you. I stopped my video and I can show it here. What do you make of that? Put it up full screen, Justin. Can you see that? No, can, can, can you see when I was at full screen? I couldn't see it. Well, of course, I couldn't see it. What do you make of that? What do you make of that? Well, it's clearly the human genome, um, which is very important. The DNA of a whiskey is, is there in the mash bill. Well, it's listen, that, 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 that's what I got from it, too. I, I thought it was like the infinity of the Solura method. That's what I got from it. It's uh, a worm, clearly. Yeah, well, but listen, 
it, it, it doesn't jump out from you. There, there's the Waterford bottle on, on Marty's on Marty's desk. The butter bottle's very distinctive. Uh, that must be the most distinctive uh, label that you'll ever see in a whiskey ever. I I think it's I think it's awesome. Yeah. If I'm totally honest, I think if it's setting up on the shelf, you're going to know from a mile away exactly what it is. You know, but it, it's it's all about the audience, really. Yeah, I mean, different type of people are attracted by different types of presentation. Um, I mean, for 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 what it's worth, I I for my clients who listen to me, and not all of them do, but for those for those who do, there's kind of there's there's, there's, a, there's a three there's also there's a number of three stage processes. But the first one is you know catch the eye, stick in the mind, and be taken to heart. And you really you want people to love your brand and to care about it, yeah. and that also means that there will be people who will who will hate it and who will be repulsed by it. But you want to have passionate, loyal customers who become passionate, loyal brand ambassadors. And producing generic wallpaper graphics ends up appealing to nobody. You know, yeah. if, if if the branding becomes a kind of a, a forum for diplomacy around a boardroom table or 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 around a kitchen table. You end up with something that's a camel in it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> I have to say, I really admire what Waterford have done there. I think it's bold yeah. and it's different, and it'll get talked about. and And they're getting coverage tonight because of yeah. the bravery that they're showing there with their brand. Yeah, I, I, I think it looks, it looks snazzy. It looks, it looks iconic. You know, it's got, it's got an appeal to it that not really anything else has. And there's certain other things going on at Waterford. I. I, I have a lot of time for if I'm honest. I, I like I like passion in anything. If yeah. somebody's passionate, I find it infectious. Yeah. Yeah. And any time I talk to anybody from Waterford, they're passionate about it. So good on them. It's good. Oh, can Marty, I, can you I say hello to very briefly, gentlemen. Sorry, can I say hello to Trevor and Darren, who I saw putting some comments on there. Haven't seen either of them in person in a really, really long time. But hello, gentlemen. Nice to uh, kind of connect with you again. What 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 do you what do you think this is? The one show. <laughs> <laughs> except the except the pars bottles are an abomination. Why 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 would you change pars gold label and turn it into that silly diamond thing? Um, just, yeah, uh, I don't get it. Now speaking of pars, not, I have this bottle. Oh Jesus! And here was me hiding on my bottles of powers. Like I said, you know the. Uh... <laughs> I have this bottle. Um, now, this is this is one from John's Lane. Oh. Now, this is a pot still, obviously. Um, what would be in that? What would be the pot still recipe for oh, that? I can't talk too much about recipes outside Cumber because we have the panel coming up and they're all supposed to be <gasps> walking in. Okay, but, right. Um, yeah, episode to come. But, but Powers, powers is <laughs> really, when you're talking about Dublin, you're talking about the Dublin mash bill more than breakdowns. And I think that's one that's going to come as a shock to a lot of people is how how similar a lot of them are to each other at various mm -hmm. stages, you know, but um, certainly when that was laid down, you know, the people who are surviving, I mean, it is a process of steady homogenization, but Dublin already had its kind of descending order of adjuncts uh, worked out. Powers had a, quite a high malt content as compared to, to many, many people, um, which is surprising considering how thick old powers is. You'd expect mm. to be the around. Um, but by the time, you know, one, one of the, the big break, probably the most important document uh, in the thesis was a 1950s letter by the Irish Pot Still Distillers Association. 
uh, and it was them outlining practice. And the reason that one was interesting, because it's so late, because if you lay something down in 1955, that's what a seven and a 12 year old are in the 1960s. And in 1967, everything changed, or after 1967, 1968, everything changed to blends. So it was confirmation of what old generation pot still was, you know, yeah. And by then, it seems to have homogenized, whereas before you get more, more variation. But Bow Street and Powers were not all that different. You know, again, different. And, and again, it's not hard. You know, when I said Cumber is 12% oats, that's my averages. You know, some days they come and there's not enough oats and you still run the distillation, you know. So yeah. And you're dealing with, you know, 100 weight sacks. So again, everything kind of vibrates internally. Um, so like one thing for the, yeah, the thesis, the, the, the ones that are in the, the, the panel, everything had to be decimalized. So we get some mash bills where there's actually two of them represented because we had to decimalize in one direction <laughs> and decimalize up in the other round up in the other direction. Yeah. Um, so you know by the time by the time that was laid down, we're talking 20% other stuff. And most of that would have been oats and then wheat. And then you're seeing who who is still using rye and that kind of drops off one by one. Yeah. And rye even a lot of them, you know, rye gets mentioned quite frequently, but for a lot of the Irish pot stills, rye was about 2%. You know, it was a really small, and one of the great unanswered questions I have is to why anyone would bother with 2% right, yeah. rye. Why, why was that done? So there's a lot of questions I, I haven't found an answer for yet. Um, but certainly when you're, when you're talking about, yeah, old Dublin, you're, you're talking about roughly, across all of them, 20% other stuff, with yeah. oak being the big one. Now, you're doing an experiment with the Bowen distillery to, to, to manufacture and with a few other people as well um, to, to bring some of these old mash bills back to life again. So will we, will we be able to see a, 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 an Eglinville pot still that you have created that was a, an old recipe from somewhere else? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of the thesis is so, Boan are carrying out the, the core experiment of the thesis, which is, yeah, the large-scale, all-day affair, 30 distillers sitting in a room um, from all across the industry, nosing samples and, and whatnot, and then that information uh, is, going, is going back out to them, and that's hand-in-hand hand with lab work that uh, I'll actually be going to, to Edinburgh relatively soon for uh, the partner universities, Harriet Watt, out there, and... Um, hopefully we'll have that lab analysis in hand before the panel even sits. The panel will be in July as restrictions allow. Um, and um, anyway, that's, that's all made possible by the fact that yes, Boan made it, but the information belongs to everyone. Now, before we were doing the, the core project, I had been quite free with, with distillers about stuff before I've had to shut my mouth in the last <laughs> months because and hope whoever heard that. Is that possible? How, how is that possible? Yeah. So, I mean, like, it doesn't help. Like, Graham Miller is one of the panelists. So, you know, it's, it's, right. it's very difficult. <laughs> and, um, the, um, but um, as part of the doc, we, we did, you know, and this was before any of the Bowen stuff happened. The day I found the Ectonville stuff again, or the, the, the old Cumber stuff, Jarlis said that they were enormously interested because they're not that far from come for themselves no. and and again there is that idea it was the last ulster pot still 
you know, it was the last double distilled pot still for the geeks. You know, there's a lot of stuff that was cool about Old Cumber uh, and there's a lot of nostalgia for it. Now, what Eckenville did was a direct recreation. So they did literally, you know, 12% oats, 48% malt or barley. You're not getting into trouble for saying this, by the way. No, no, because in, in other ones, it's been, yeah, it's, you know, everything else has been, again, decimalized into sets of 5%. And also everything else was done under shared conditions. So everything blended was filled, taken at the exact same cut point, same fermentation point. Everything had to be standard. Um, so that the only thing, the only variable from a scientific perspective is the changing mash bill. Whereas with what we did with Eklenville, we were looking at those sources and saying, oh, well, that's where they took their cut points here and here. And we were able to really, you know, uh, allow them to kind of like hobble together something very, very close to, you know, and it was double distilled. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember going through the books. With, I, I, I took Graham into the, the into, into Prony and we were going through, um, the records and he was going wow how did they manage to get that point on on that kit blah 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 with those percentages and then he was pointing at stuff he says oh, i know a lad that's just signing off at the end of a day when i see one this isn't incomplete <laughs> <laughs> you know this isn't you know and um and there is that side of it unfortunately with all yeah. of them wherever i found them when you get into the 50s a lot of the records become really sloppy because yeah. you get a sense that the places are dying and people aren't yeah. too fast Whereas when you see stuff in the twenties and even the thirties, you know it's it's very in depth. It's very you know replete. Um, but yeah, so so the Boan stuff is is thesis proper. The Eklundville stuff was kind of a bit of fun on the back of the thesis that Eklundville and and it was great. It's a different but, manifestation of of the research, you know. But the thing is, Mark, you must be the likes of that. You must be excited that you're actually going to be able to taste something. Essentially, something recreated from from the nineteen twenties and thirties, and in, in where you're from. I mean that, that that must be in some ways exciting for you too. Yeah, well, it's one thing to revive a brand and to reproduce fonts and color schemes and illustrations and all that, but to actually be able to recreate a, a vintage antique liquid yeah. from a mash bill. I mean. That's that's time travel. That's absolutely incredible. It is. And and somebody very wisely there whose whose name I, I didn't quite catch commented that who cares about the labeling as long as the liquid is special. Yeah. And, oh my goodness. I mean, how special is this going to be? Now I'm going to have to say the labeling's got to be has to live up to the, the quality <laughs> of what's inside. That's the designer in you doing this. There we go. Yeah, yeah. As long as the juice is good, who cares? Um, I'll not. I'll not continue with the rest of that remark there. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the the the, the labeling is true. That is true. Yeah. The, the labeling, the labeling, and the presentation and the messaging has got to be right for for today. But oh my goodness, to be able to have something inside there that is authentically that that old is I, astonishing. I yeah, well, I'm I'm beginning to to have a, a little bit of an epiphany and and certain things. I I was telling people about this last week. Okay, this is a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker Red Label, the best selling Scotch in the world. Okay, blend, very cheap. And the difference between this from the 1960s and today is like chalk and cheese. Uh, Justin, even Justin was was blown away by just how different it was. And that idea of flavour drift and things things being changing and so on and so forth, 
back in the day, people had lots of lots more flavour in a glass than we do today. We just do. Yeah. Um, but that, that's the case across all, all sorts of um, food, and food and drink products. It because there's, there's all sorts of I mean, mechanisation of processes, homogenized legislation, and regulations, and yeah. all, all of that has a role. You know, the, the bread we eat today isn't the same as our bread. Would it's, it's, it's not. And I, I honestly think that the best days of whiskey are probably in the future. It's probably, it's probably 10 years from now, people will start to be going, my God, this is so much better than what we had. 10 years ten years ago and the likes of Waterford what they're doing with the the, the, the terroir stuff and the, the you know the organic and the biodynamic growers and all this kind of stuff I think I think we're getting and we're heading towards something being yeah even better. I mean it's, it's funny because and whiskey was a kind of a delayed well not delayed in in the large sense part of this history if you look and I think people forget this if you look at the period where a lot of these distilleries collapsed, um, you're talking about 1890 to 1930. And really what happens during that period is a move towards standardization, towards industrial, well, the industrialization had already happened, but yeah. large, scale, large, sale, large scale sales, uh, large scale production, but also a different kind of ethos. And I, a time when people, you know, one one thing that Colmsell made possible in whiskey, and you see it happening in bread and all kinds of other yep. food products, is reliability. The what's what's for sale is that a Johnny Walker in New York tastes the same as a Johnny Walker in Hong Kong tastes the same as a Johnny Walker in London. You know, and it the story of the twentieth century is a story, at least in the West, of people embracing and running after a concept of modernity that was all about brands as large-scale reliable products because what had come before was shaky reliability was dubious practice <laughs> all you know and and all kinds of 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 questions that, that you know that big brands with big consistency put to rest and it's only now on the far side of century of this that we're looking back at the 90s and thinking, geez, why did everyone eat all this wonder bread? You know, this stuff is is is, is boring as all hell. You know, why, why don't we <laughs> this lovely rye bread people were eating in Germany in the 1650s? Mm. And as well, there was, you know, it's a different attitude. And we've, we've taken the best of the past, but with the securities afforded by industrialization Absolutely. And, mm. and reimagined it. But we're uh, not uh, the thing is like suspect, you know, is this really a Bushmills kind of... Kind of and they've been focused so much on getting yield. Because, I mean, let, let's be honest, up until the last century, people were at the, the vagaries of, of the weather. You know, if the weather was bad, you, you, people basically starved and people were hungered. And in the last century, that hasn't been. So people have been focused so much on yield that they've been breeding stuff to produce a huge amount of, of yield over quality or flavour. And now... Now we understand how things work, and we have much better controls, and we have much better uh, methods of methods of food production. You, I think you would possibly start seeing it rolling back. Now, one well, of the that, other things—that's that, what Connor's saying there. He's saying batch variation became the enemy, and now it's beginning to be actively sought again. I mean, that's basically what Waterford's doing, isn't it? Yeah, and and other people are doing the same thing. Um, but it's 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 this idea. People want a consistent product. When you reach a bottle off the shelf, you want it to be the same as before. But if you take this and compare it to 
to today's product, you have a flavour drift because people have got a sweeter palate now. They want they want things to be sweet and sugary. Um, that's why diabetes is so so prevalent these days. <laughs> <laughs> but they do, and and when you take that away and you get a standard product, and people start going, "Oh, we need to add stuff to this." Well, you're adding, you're, you're you're increasing what people can sell you as well. You know, if you get something that's not an awful lot of flavour in, they want to put something on top of that to add flavour. So it's another chance for people to sell you stuff. <laughs> you know, that all works. What I'm what I've moved on to now, as an and again, a lot of blended whiskey people don't pay for blended whiskey of the past. So you can pick up like 90s Blackbush for not too much, 80s Blackbush, you know. Um, I, have a, I have about four bottles of it sitting here. Yeah, and it's astounding trying even just 80s, 90s, 80s now and seeing that flavor drift occur, yeah. you know. And, I mean, what I'm drinking now is 90s Blackbush. And uh, the reason I picked the 90s is because, you know, there's when you go back as far as the 80s, you're, you're dealing with different, I mean, Jesus, some yeah. of the grain might still be in there uh, that, that early on. Um, well, but the recipe between the 90s and now hasn't changed. It's 80% malt whiskey, 20% grain pot light, the, the weird Blackbush grain whiskey they make down in Middleton. You know, uh, and within that shared context, it has still drifted, you yeah. know. But when you talk about, I mean, again, you look at, and now the, again, that's a minority grain whiskey, but, you know, what grain whiskey did was stabilize that drift as best as possible. But even Johnny Walker drifts, you know, yeah. you know it's 80% grain whiskey. Whereas if you look before, you get wild variations. So, you know, we yeah. do touch on the column still, and especially in the context of industrialization of Belfast. And you get that shift from the likes of um, Old Combo, which would have been, again, agrarian, traditionalist, <laughs> distilled, variable, to the likes of Dunville's, who copped it. That you know, to build a brand, you needed scale and you needed reliability, and they yeah. start in the column stills. And you know, it's funny because a lot of the other distilleries in Belfast, you know, you look at Conswater, they just made grain whiskey and pumped it out the door. You oh. know, Agniel uh, was was even a bit sketchy, whereas Dunville's made pot and column and blended. You know, they were essentially doing what Middleton do now, long before you know, or yeah, before before the formation of Irish distillers, they had popped the necessity of producing a house blend on scale, but with flavor, et cetera. But that, that became the story of the 20th century. And I think, you know, we, we could only include, much as I would have loved to include as many distillers as would show up, you know, we really earmarked um, Killowen, Bushmills, and Eckenville for that reason, uh, with Bushmills being the heritage. And then the other two, Killowen representing, again, that return to agrarian what's your favorite mash bill that you've worked on over the last year asked peter Gilbraith. well again I, I can't talk about any of the ones that are in the thesis <laughs> july 18th um but um, we're gonna have to have you back on like mark hamill you know before empire later Trevor Watson is saying he'd like to go to a barbecue with the four of us. It would be a great evening. It wouldn't be Trevor because I eat everything. Isn't yeah. that right, Marty? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I just noticed it's a quarter to 12. Uh, I do. Uh, guys, honestly, wow. Um, I, wow. our shows normally last an hour. And I think it's it's a bit of a... <laughs> it, it sort of tells you just, just 
just what's going on here. Um, this is nearly double that. Uh, I, I think that I think what we'll do is we'll call it a night. Um, otherwise, for you and I'll be here at about three o'clock in the morning with you and end up absolutely monkeyed again. <laughs> now, what time's the show on tomorrow night? Um, ten, 10 o'clock, BBC Two NI, BBC Two NI. Um, I'm sure if if you get some clever clever box and you're 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 somewhere within a BBC region, you can find us a way down in the in the, the very obscure numbers. It, at the it is. I've put details how people can do that. Oh, very good. You you very scroll good. down into the nine hundreds, you'll find it. Or if really? you put in a postcode starting with BT thirty eight nine D E, you you will uh, you, you will you will reach in your box. <laughs> or okay? even even better, I'm just calling nine D E. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll record it, and anybody who wants to watch it, just come round to Glenarm, and you can walk in here and we'll have a drink and watch yeah. it. How's that? Sound? No. But you know, as as, as as Fanon was saying there, that there's there's just so much that that couldn't be fitted in. I haven't even seen. The final edit myself, but they say that normally you sh that when when a TV program is being made, they shoot an hour for every minute that is broadcast. I think in this case they maybe shot twice or three times that much. And and Sean said to me at one point, "This is like trying to fit a duvet into a sock." So yeah. there's going to be a whole lot of things that just had to be left out for all sorts of reasons. But so many individuals have been interviewed and, and gave up their time. So many venues allowed us in into their premises under all sorts of COVID restrictions. And my enormous thanks to all of them, but in particular, honestly, to to Fanon for giving of his his expertise and enthusiasm and his his, his theatricality and how he tells these stories as well. I hope everybody really enjoys it tomorrow night. Uh, listen, I think everybody I talked to a lot of people over Loads of people have come up and said to me, "You know, there's a show on on Saturday, on Sunday night." I said, "Do you know there's a show on on Saturday night where I interview the two guys?" Are doing it? <laughs> you know, so but oh, I'm interested in hearing about this, and it is, it's it's that nice to have that connection to the history and to be able to pick up a bottle of something and 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 taste the the past, and that, that that's just something you can't do really with well else. And whiskey's fabulous for doing that. Fabulous for doing as, that. As Mark said, it was it was a, a relief, you know. Again, and a lot of people helped us. I, I I still remember the like eerie feeling of like you know simulacra being in the Duke of York. You know, how did you spend lockdown? In a pub, pretending to be drinking in a pub. You know, the <laughs> <laughs> feeling of yeah. the settlement. Some, some of which was actually just tap water. I mean, we were pretending it wasn't, but it was actually tap water. In no, the, I don't believe. In I don't believe that for a single second. Oh, no, there's no way is in, is in the Duke of York drinking tap water. We were <laughs> <laughs> for a whole afternoon tap water, and that's all it was. Uh, but like. You see, if you're wanting, to, if you're wanting to find the outcomer, think, Wally, Wally, Jack, is there any chance of getting in here? Because honestly, you see, if anybody out there has that, I will, I will sell a kidney or two just right. to get it. The one no, it's illegal in the UK to sell organs, so oh, don't be doing okay. that. Well, that was no, one is nine eight B two when you're when you're typing into the thing. Very decent lad. Uh, <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> on your behalf. He recently hacked into the health service down here. The North Koreans have him banned. The North Koreans have him banned. Ah, guys, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I, honestly, um, 
I'll get talking to you again. I'm sure in the, in the very very near future. Um, the show I can't wait to see it, and I think it's it's the first. This, there's going to be more episodes of this or more um, sequels to this than there is of the Rocky franchise. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot more that could be done. It's up to all sorts of other people to decide whether there's a, an interest in doing that. But uh, there's a lot more that could be done. On this island, there's a lot more that could be done in, in Ulster. There's a lot more that could be done in Scotland. And, of course, as Fanon was saying, I just I would love to sit in on a pew in Mingle Creek Presbyterian Church and feel that rebellion against the government rising within me. <laughs> Hamilton, where is he? Well, that's war. Now he's taxing us. I can tell this story about a Presbyterian minister because it's true, and I can't defame anybody because they're dead now, and they're also a, 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 a member of my family. My, my dad used to go poaching with his uh, great uh, uncle, who was a Presbyterian minister. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and he used to ask him, don't worry about getting caught, son. One of these... Is for the policeman. <laughs> so, so, uh, so uh, there you go. So, uh, yes, it's probably correct. All that about Presbyterians. Uh, there you go. What a great show, guys! Listen, it's been it's been fabulous. Uh, we'll let you go. Marty and me will wrap up. I think will we? Yeah. Hi. Uh, we'll get wrapped up. And all right, much, guys. Awesome. It's been great. Guys, right. thank you. Soon. All right. See you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.